if you don't love people, then you should not be a CEO because most of your time is spent working with and learning from others. Be humble, even if you've been successful. Know that there are a lot of people that know a lot more than you. Yeah. Know that you will always be learning and use that humility also to learn from the people who work for you every single day. If they fear that when they voice change, somebody's gonna come from the top and is going to give them trouble for it, then you don't get the best ideas from people. Intelligence and education is becoming a commodity. What is not a commodity is the passion that they bring to your company on a Monday morning. A big job of leadership is to nurture this passion and this commitment. If you feel that you have to be somebody else to be successful because you look up at the top ranks of the organization, you don't see anybody that looks like you, then it's more difficult for you to give this extra to an organization. If you really want to get to the top of what you're doing, you've got to be taking some risks, and the earlier you take the risk, the better. This is CRNet TV. My name is Hendrik Dekkers. I'm here today with Francois Locodonou. Francois is the president and CEO of F5. Very warm welcome, Francois. Thank you, Hendrik. Thank you for having me. Francois, you have a master in engineering from uh, university in uh, Paris and Marseille. You have an MBA from Stanford. You worked 15 years for Siena, uh, a big uh, infrastructure uh, telco company. And for the last three years, you've been at F5. Um, what I would like to start this conversation with is that you tell us a little bit your background. Where do you really come from and how did you arrive in the position where you are today, in a nutshell? Hmm. Well, thank you for having me, Henrik. Uh, I, so I grew up in uh, Togo, in West Africa, uh, and uh, in my teenage years, I moved to France with my mother, who is French, uh -huh. uh, where I went to high school and I then studied in engineering schools in Marseille and, and Paris. I joined um, a French company doing research and development in the space of fiber optic sensors. Uh, that company sent me to the U.S. to help with the transfer of technology. And I ended up staying in the, in the U.S. after that. So I joined a, a company called Siena, yep. which is a leader in the optical networking domain. And there um, I joined initially in the uh, technical sales organization. It was called Pre-Sales Engineer. And um, I spent, uh, as you said, 15 years there in uh, a number of roles in uh, sales, in marketing, uh, going back to leading research and development at some point. Um, and uh, that led to me becoming COO of uh, Siena. Mm -hmm. And about two years after that, uh, joining F5 as CEO. Okay. So you have a technical background, but are very commercial at the same time. So that's quite a unique that, combination. That's correct, no? yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. We'll come back to that. Mm -hmm. Let's first talk a little bit about F5. Let's set some context. How would you describe um, what F5 really does and what is F5 really good at? Mm. So if you, if you think about F5, we are in the world of um, IT and applications. Mm -hmm. uh, and a simple way to portray what F5 does is if you think about an application that lives in a data center mm -hmm. and the user of these applications that can be anywhere on their device, on their laptops, at home, to make that application run 24 by 7 mm -hmm. and to make that application secure for all users, there are a number of 
services that happen between the applications and the user. Yep. F5 is a specialist at making these services available and mm -hmm. making applications run 24 by 7. Yep. And so most of large enterprise applications run on F5. If you have booked a ticket uh, online recently, you've probably used uh, F5 as an example. Okay. If you have gone to your online banking application, most likely F5 was behind making that work. Mm -hmm. So most of the large applications that are used by a number of people today run on F5. So you have a set of services, tools, software, so that the applications are delivered in a performant way and in a secure way. Exactly. Okay, great. So. Let's talk about um, the delivery part maybe and about security part. Mm -hmm. So what is so you said you need to go through all these different steps to deliver an app. What is really the challenge there and, and how do you solve that uh, challenge with your technology? The, the challenge there uh, today, it, it, well historically the challenge for uh, the steps mm -hmm. uh, had been that Applications are um, moving into a number of different areas and you have to route traffic to all these areas and do that um, quite accurately for the application to function 24 by 7. What's changing now is that, that was the origin. There was that was the origin of load balancing, yeah, yeah. etc. Yeah. What, what is changing today is that applications are being deployed in different types of clouds, both private clouds and um, public clouds. Yeah. Uh, the way the applications are built are changing. There's new technology called microservices and containers, that applications that are distributed in different uh, small little components. Yep. And so um, making that work across all these environments uh, require that uh, CIOs have access to technologies that work the same way in all of these environments. Mm -hmm. And F5 has essentially uh, been doing that for the last several years, is yep. make our technology available for these applications in all of these environments, we call them multi-cloud environments. That's the, I think that's a big part of the application delivery uh, challenge. The, the other challenge in application delivery is that as companies go through digital transformation, they want to build applications or change their applications faster. To do that, they need a lot more automation. Yep. And so that's the other area where F5 gets involved is mm -hmm. we have automated a process that used to be fairly manual okay. uh, to enable our customers to build and change and evolve their applications a lot faster, okay. 10 times faster than they would have in the past. You have acquired Nginx a couple of years ago. Does that play a central role in that part? Yes, Nginx plays a central role in that part because they allow us to insert uh, these um, application services mm -hmm. in very lightweight environments like these containers, these microservices. And the Nginx also consolidates a number of functions into one very single piece of, uh, single lightweight piece of code yep. uh, that is very portable. Um, and so they've, they've helped us a lot play into these multi-cloud environments. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the delivery part. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the security part. Mm -hmm. And also that, I understand, came with an acquisition that you did of, of Shape, right? Yes, yeah, so F5 uh, had invested in security for the last 10 years okay. um, in protecting applications from denial of service attack, mm -hmm. uh, building uh, applications firewall that, that essentially block very sophisticated attacks on applications. Yep. Recently, we doubled down on our position in security by acquiring a, a company called uh, Shape Security, yep. uh, which protects uh, attacked um, applications 
from attackers typically that have managed to steal the credentials of users, so the passwords and username, mm -hmm. and that are coming in in applications using typically bots. And so these are increasingly attackers are using bots or automated um, uh, attacks to bombard applications with these credentials. And um, Shape has built very sophisticated technology that prevents these attacks from happening. Yeah. Could you elaborate on that? Because I was, you, you explained it, we had a dinner yesterday, so I understand a little bit how that works. Yeah. I was quite fascinated on, on, on how that works because it's on behavior and, and so on of, of, mm -hmm. of the users of applications. Yeah, so the, ba the basics of the technology, Hendrik, is that when a, when a user, uh, so if you think about an application that is sitting somewhere in the cloud on a server and a user that is logging in to access that application, uh, the technology of Shape sits between the user and this application. And when the user logs in, it injects a piece of code into their, their device. Okay. And that piece of code collects a lot of information about what the user is doing. And it's yeah. doing that in really you know, a few milliseconds. Um, but it collects a lot of telemetry about whether it's a desktop or a, a phone, mm -hmm. um, how it's being used, the speed with which it's being used, what applications it is accessing. Uh, and it sends that information to a cloud analytics engine, mm -hmm. which marries that information with a lot of other data points other users, uh, the way they've accessed the application, also information about threat intelligence, all of the new attacks that are happening, the bad IP addresses that are available. And it takes all of that and decides whether or not this user is actually a human or a bot. Yep. And if it's a human, if it really is the human that it says it is. Yep. And it makes a decision as to whether this person should access the application or not. Yep. And doing it this way uh, with the technology they have, uh, we've been able to see that a lot of the traffic that are coming to a lot of websites is actually bot traffic, it's not human. And we're also, we've been able to block a lot of uh, fraud that is happening on these sites. There was an example uh, that you had on an airline that uses this technology uh, to make sure that they're uh buying a ticket is, is, uh, can be done in a safe way and that bots are not in, in, intruding the company that way. C mm -hmm. Could you elaborate on that a bit? Yes, we, we have been doing some work with a, an airline that um, was looking at how they can remove the friction in their interaction with their customers. Mm -hmm. um, and so in, in, their, in their scenario, uh, they typically have their customer, if somebody comes in uh, on their site to book a ticket, yeah. after a certain period of time, let's say 30 minutes, the set, if they haven't completed the purchase of the ticket, the session will log them out yep. automatically. And that's for security purposes. Yep. But they found out that a lot of people don't complete it in 30 minutes because maybe they want to speak to a family member and decide if they really want to go to this place or talk about the price, etc. Yep. But when people are logged out, some people don't come back. So it's business that is lost for the airline. And using the technology, uh, because we're able to so accurately identify who the person is that is accessing the, the, the site, uh, we've been able to say, no, we can let these people continue their sessions and not log them out. That has removed the friction and therefore it increases the business potential for the airline. So you can detect by the usage and the IP and all the telemetrics and so on, if this is a real person that, that we can trust and that can, that can stay locked on longer and therefore has a higher chance of buying a ticket. Exactly. Then, no, this is probably more, but we should shut that off uh, out uh, pretty quickly. Yeah, and so it's a, 
of course, it starts with a security, a purpose of securing an application, yep. but it goes beyond that because when you remove the friction that users have in using an application, yep. it's not just a security benefit, it's a business benefit yep. that you can essentially enhance the, the revenue that's driven by the application. Yep. Our fundamental belief, uh, Hendrik, is that we are now in the era, you heard me say this yesterday, in the era of application capital. Yeah, in that, that was the, fascinating. Yeah. The, you know, we believe that some of the most valuable assets that enterprises have today are their applications. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the fundamental drive of F5, our mission is to help our customers get the most value out of these applications. Yeah. And this is one example by which we can do yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, you said that the world has moved from a machine capital world to a human capital and now to app capital. I thought it was quite fascinating yes. that, uh, that the value, uh, how you value companies is based on how well they are, how perform in, in getting the best possible uh, apps in a secure and a performant way to their users. If you look at that, if you look at um, a lot of large enterprises and you can look by every vertical you know, industry, whether it's telecom or finance, or healthcare, or we just talked about airlines, yeah. manufacturing, you, you will find that increasingly a lot more of their business is driven by applications, yeah. which is where the revenue is generated, which is where a lot of the core process, processes are run. Um, and so, yeah, we truly believe that we have uh, reached the uh, application capital era. Okay. So that also means that the people that you interact with uh, at your customers, have changed over time as well. You used to talk more with the developers, head of development, head of security. Now I can imagine more with CIOs, but all with also with chief revenue officers that are responsible for the business, right? Well, the chief, you're right on this evolution. Yeah. Um, largely, if you look historically, most of our work has been in the infrastructure mm -hmm. of uh, IT organizations, so engaging with chief of network operations, yeah. um, increasingly, of course, security chiefs and CIOs. But with the evolution of the technology in the way I just described mm -hmm. to you, I think we're going to be engaging more with chief revenue officers yep. and heads of lines of business uh, to help them get the most out of their applications. Okay, great. First of all, one of the um, slogans you use in, in your organization is go to customer. Yeah. Could you explain that, please? Yes. So if you look at what I've just said about the era of application capital, mm -hmm. um, the unit of value creation increasingly in digital organizations is the application. Mm -hmm. But if you look at how IT organizations are typically organized, they're organized by siloed teams yep. that own you know, the, the switches and routers, the servers, the storage. The, and so the way we try to approach the problem for our customers and saying, between the code of an application and the users of that application, all of the application services that are in between, that are managed by silo, yep. we want to bring visibility to our customers of that entire chain so that it's easier to find problems, yep. which today takes a long time and is very manual, uh, and it's easier to make changes uh, to that whole code to customer chain because that horizontal chain is really what matters at the end of the day to create a great experience. It's not the vertical uh, silos that exist in uh, each organization. Yep. And a lot of technology vendors are focused on owning a vertical stack. Yep. F5 is more focused on creating a very differentiated end user experience for an application. And so you can offer kind of a dashboard 
Absolutely. So that when something goes wrong, you can very quickly know where it goes wrong and can fix it quickly. Exactly. Yeah. The, 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 and the dashboard that we create is all about application insights, understanding the health of the application, understanding what's happening in that yeah. chain. And if something needs to be changed, yeah. making that very visible very quickly yeah. uh, so that it can be changed in real time. Okay. F5 has been in the business for over 20 years now, has gone public in the dot-com era, if I understand it correctly. So that means that also the company is going through a lot of changes over the, over yeah. the last years. And where traditionally it was more of an appliance and, and hardware, now it's becoming more of a software company and a services company. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Yes, you know, when, when uh, uh, F5 went public in the very late 90s, it was a time where, and then in the early 2000s, large enterprise customers were building data centers uh, to host all their applications. And so yep. even though the, uh, the secret sauce, if you will, of F5, uh, a lot of it was in the software, mm -hmm. uh, but the technology was consumed in hardware appliances that were in data centers. Yep. And we did a lot of work to make our hardware perform you know, faster, and better than what was available. Now that applications are distributed across multiple environments, including uh, public clouds, yep. the consumption models are shifting uh, a lot more to software or software subscription yeah. or software as a service. Yeah. And so we've been in a transition for the last four years um, to make sure that our technology is very easy to consume yeah. in all these environments. Yeah. And as we do that, more and more of the business is becoming software yeah. and services. And so you have, you work together with the Amazons and the Microsofts and the VMwares, and so they're your natural partners, right? Uh, everyone that is in the public cloud uh, business or private cloud uh, business, we integrate with them and we have very solid partnerships with, uh, with them to make sure that our customers have a, an integrated experience. Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the company culture. When you arrived uh, three years ago at F5, what was the culture that, you, um, that was there and, and, and did you have to make any changes in that culture? Well, one of the th things that made me join F5 is actually the culture of F5. Um, John McAdam, who's my predecessor and, and built F5 uh, over you know, a period of uh, 15 years, um, really built a culture of, a, a of, I would say, a culture of humility in the company, mm -hmm. um, a, a culture where I think people really care about the broader agenda of the company. There is significant uh, authenticity and loyalty into the company, and those are elements that really um, appealed to me in joining the, the company. No. The things that needed to change, I think, um, we really needed to accelerate on this transition to the cloud and mm -hmm. to making sure that our customers can consume our technology yep. easily in automated and orchestrated environments. And so we needed to move faster. Uh, and so I, you know, I tried to infuse uh, a sense of urgency and speed around some of these transformations when I joined. Okay. Uh, two very strategic decisions that you have taken over the last couple of years was the acquisition of Nginx and of Shape Securities. How uh, was culture important in making the decision to acquire these companies? And, and how um, were you able to make sure that uh, the acquisitions would be successful? Because mm -hmm. many of them are, are, are failures, right? Yes, you know, I think, uh, you know, the majority of acquisitions in the technology space uh, don't work out mm -hmm. uh, as intended. Um, in the time I was at Siena over the years, um, we made a lot of acquisitions, mm -hmm. you know, some of them weren't really successful, but some, um, you know, a few of them were very, very successful. Yeah. 
Um, and what I learned over that, um, that period is that the, a couple of things matter tremendously. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is making sure that the, the mission of the company that we acquire is a very strong fit strategically yep. with the mission of the acquiring company. Mm-hmm. And I feel strongly that in the case of Nginx and Shape, that was absolutely the case. Yep. Um, and then culture is absolutely critical. And I know it's a cliche word, but mm-hmm. we did spend a lot of time uh, ahead of these acquisitions, uh, making sure that we felt comfortable uh, that the people coming in yep. uh, will feel very good about coming into F5, yep. feel that not only would they be working into interesting things, uh, but they would be able to work well with the, the, the people at F5. Yep. And both of these acquisitions are very recent, so the jury is still out <laughs> on whether they, yep. they succeed or not, but yep. the first signs um, have been excellent. Yep. Because you have learned from you mm-hmm. that if you do an acquisition, you have to look at it this way, that the company that you acquire should be more successful within the acquiring company than if they would uh, be on their own. Yes, we, we've, we've, I firmly believe that um, you know, when you're making an acquisition, especially when you're a public company, yeah. you're using the money of your shareholders yeah. to decide to go and buy uh, an asset, yeah. which your shareholders could make that investment Correctly. on their own. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so you have to really be able to answer the question as to why is this asset more valuable inside of F5 than yep. it is outside? Mm-hmm. In, in the answer to that question, uh, really comes your, your integration plan. We call it an FI value creation plan. Uh, but if, if your reason for why it's more valuable is that you will do some technology integration with your products or you will do some integration of the sales teams and amplify the distribution of this product, yeah. then, then you have to really very quickly start executing on yeah. these, um, these thesis, these synergies yeah. to create the value. And so we've been, we've been very disciplined about making sure that if we don't have a clear answer to this first question, mm-hmm. we don't make an acquisition. Yeah. And we, you know, in the last um, couple of years that I've been at uh, F5, um, we have looked at a number of companies, mm-hmm. um, but we've only made two acquisitions, yep. largely because of this question. Okay, great. Let's talk a bit about your role as CEO. It must be a fascinating role. Eh? Mm-hmm. To be a CEO of, of, of such a technology company and the world is changing so quickly. So you, you have a number of uh, roles to play. Mm-hmm. You need to take care of the strategy. You need to take care of the leadership. You need to build and manage the teams. You have to report to your uh, to your owners, to the investors, and you have to make sure that operations run uh, um, uh, fine, that R and D is running is running well. How do you split up your time between all these different tasks that you that you have? Well, <laughs> you speak like you've been in that role because you you <laughs> describe it very very well, uh, Hendrik. So. Um, Look, for me, the, the, you know, the, the first order of the day mm-hmm. um, is making sure that we have a healthy culture in the company. Okay. Because a healthy culture in an environment where everybody in the company feels that they can be themselves and they can be successful mm-hmm. um, is the start of everything. It means that you know, your employees about, are passionate about coming into the company. Yeah. You know, when we compete heavily for, for talent in technology, mm-hmm. Um, you you want to make I, I tell our employees at F5 that I look at most of them or all of them are as volunteers they could you know walk away from F5 tomorrow morning and there would be three technology companies that would be willing to hire them yeah. and so one of my design points for how I spend my time is making sure that I can create an environment where 
every one of our employees feels I'm coming here because I love it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a great uh, culture. It's a collaborative culture. My colleagues are here. They're helping me thrive. Yep. I don't have to be somebody that I'm not to be able to be successful. Mm -hmm. um, and I work on really interesting problems. So that's kind of the, the, the beginning of everything for me. Yeah. Then I spent a lot of time, as uh, we discussed, on strategy because our world is evolving pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I feel it's important as a technology company, even though we know things are going to change, mm -hmm. it's important to have an end game vision of where uh, the industry that we play in is going to be yeah. and play to that end game vision with the right sense of urgency. Yeah. And then you spend time with, on, with, with your customers as well, I, I can imagine. How much of your time goes into commercial and, 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 and relationships with your customers? Um, I spend as much time as possible with our customers and with our sales teams at the front end of the yep. business. That involves quite a bit of uh, uh, travel. And that's but, why you're doing the tour of Europe. But, but, yeah. but that's why, one of the reasons I'm here. Yeah. But you know, when I, when I share with you that I spend time on strategy, that includes spending time with customers because a lot of the learnings and insights no. um, that inform what we are going to do next comes with conversations with people who are yeah. using our technology, who are facing the real problem of transforming their businesses digitally. Yeah. So it's a very significant portion of, um, of my time. And because that is one of, I mean, defining the strategy of your company is one of the, must be one of the most fun parts of your, of, of your job. And just to say, well, this is where we're going. That's the company that we want to be. And this is who we are today. So, so how do you do that? How do you create that vision? How, and, and who does that in, in your organization? It's done by, uh, um, I would say, a number of people. It is led, we have a strong strategy team. We have a very strong chief strategy officer that joined uh -huh. us uh, two years ago, who's built a team and who is essentially leading and facilitating that effort. But a big part of his role is to bring the right experts and the right people in this conversation at the right time. Mm -hmm. um, we're treating strategy at F5 not as a, a finite effort um, that happens you know, two months in the year, but it's something that we do continuously through yep. the year. Um, and that is led by, um, by him. And so how we come up with a, uh, a vision you know, I think it starts with uh, uh, all of these conversations with customers and with uh, our own employees and visionaries. And it starts with a kernel of it saying, okay, we think this direction makes sense. But then as you involve more people mm -hmm. uh, into the strategy, it also becomes bigger and it becomes clearer. So I can share with you, for example, that as a result of the acquisition of Nginx, mm -hmm. there were people that came from Nginx, including the CEO of Nginx, the CTO of Nginx, that amplified our vision okay. because they brought a perspective that yep. we didn't have. And now we've just made the acquisition of Shape and our vision for the future is also being yep. amplified and clarified again. Mm -hmm. So you, you start with a direction, but new perspectives come in and bring you know, a new lens on what you're doing. Yep. Because having the right strategy is so important because that, that defines the growth that you will have in, in, in the coming years. Mm -hmm. and, and, and defining a, a really good growth strategy, making sure that you select your domain where you want to excel and where you want to make the difference is, is, mm -hmm. is crucial, right? Yeah, choosing the right category that yeah. you're going to play in is absolutely crucial. And yeah. for technology companies, I think it's make or break. Yeah, cru uh, select the category where you can be the number one or two. That's, mm. that's what you need to be, I, I can imagine. Yeah. Okay. 
So your role as a CEO, did that change already over the last three years? Is it different the way that you work now than, than when you joined? I'd say the, the biggest change is when I joined, um, we were going through a transition as well of executive team. And so in the first year that I was at F5, I spent an inordinate amount of time uh, recruiting uh, a new executive team. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so that what has changed is I'm spending less time on that today and a lot more time working with this team. Yeah. We are very fortunate that we've been able to uh, attract very strong talent from across the industry, a number of different companies yeah. um, that really brought a perspective of um, where we wanted to take the company mm -hmm. that had a lot of experience in these new yeah. uh, software as a service model in the, in the public clouds, um, in software and services in general. Yeah. Uh, and so today, a lot of more of my time is, is spent working with them and figuring out how do we ex accelerate this transition. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about your management style. Uh, I mean, an important role of a manager is to grow and build successful teams. And mm -hmm. uh, so that means that you need to acquire top talent. Um, in the Valley and in Seattle, there's a culture of mercenaries, people that for hire, uh, top talent that is there for hire. But, but how do you look at that? How do you, you said that employee engagement is important, but how do you really do that? Mm. Um, so my, my philosophy about this is the, I, I look for a few qualities in leaders mm -hmm. that I think translate very well in the organization. Um, I mentioned humility earlier, and I, I feel that that was part of the culture before I joined F5, yeah. but it's a trait that I nurture a lot because in, in technology, humility is both a, uh, sometimes it's a rare thing for mm -hmm. companies that have been successful, but it's a very precious thing because yeah. the time you stop learning and being humble is the beginning of the end. Yeah. And so in the leaders that we have um, attracted at F5, it's probably the first character trait I look at. Oh, yeah. um, is the, this, this um, uh, ability to be humble, mm -hmm. even if you've been successful, know that there are a lot of people that know a lot more than you, yeah. know that you will always be learning and, and use that humility also to learn from the people who work for you, mm -hmm. you know, every single day. Yeah. Um, that humility also translates to an executive team that doesn't have an ego, uh, that isn't playing elbows with each other for you know, whatever yeah. um, territory building that is going on. Yeah. And, and I think it creates a much healthier uh, overall organization. So that's been a big focus for us. I learned that you, you grew up in, in Togo for the first 15 years of, mm -hmm. of, of your life. Togo at the time was a dictatorship mm -hmm. where command and control and hierarchy and authority was, was everything. Mm -hmm. Is that where this comes from? Your, your love for, uh, your hate for authority or your love for uh, an engagement and employee uh, and empowerment? Yes, part, part of it comes from that. that yeah. um, you know, I grew up in an environment where I felt that the you know, it, it was the law of whoever had the strongest, uh, the, you know, the weapons or the, the strongest authority, not because their ideas were better than anybody else, but, but because, you know, Military uh, they, were, they were in power. Yeah. Um, and that translated in many ways in parts of uh, civilian life. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in, in a world of where the, the competition is moving extremely fast, mm -hmm. um, the best ideas is really has what has to win in an organization. Mm -hmm. It's easy to say, but it's actually very difficult to yeah. realize because most organizations are hierarchical. Yeah. And if people 
have fear that when they voice change or they voice the need to do something different, yeah. um, then some, somebody is going to come from the top that has some authority uh, and is going to give them trouble for it, mm-hmm. uh, then you don't get the best ideas from yeah. people. And so I firmly believe, and so that's one of the things I look for, is making sure that leaders who are uh, in position of responsibility in an organization yeah. don't start behaving uh, by saying you will do this just because yeah. uh, I said you should do this. Now, how important is diversity in your organization? And let me uh, ask the question, uh, the following. Uh, you have a, a French mother, uh, your father was from Togo. When you lived in, in Togo, you were the, the, the white guy. When you lived in, 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 in Paris, you were the black guy. So you were always a little bit the odd one out. How, how did that play a role on how you look at diversity in your organization today? Yes, it played a role in that, in both of those situations you described. Um, and I think others, everybody kind of experienced that in their growing up, but I certainly felt a strong experience of having to try and fit in a group where I was a minority okay. um, in, in a lot of cases. Um, but I, I, So I want to share with you why that has influenced my views on, on, on diversity. I, most of my career has been in the technology yep. industry. In the technology industry today, um, I, I feel that intelligence and education is becoming a commodity. And, and by that I mean there are a lot of very intelligent, very educated people mm-hmm. that are available to global companies all over the world. Yeah. What is not a commodity is the experience these people have and the passion that they bring to your company on a Monday morning. Mm-hmm. And so a big job of leadership in organizations is to nurture this passion and this commitment because yeah. people choose to give this passion and the commitment. It's not, a, it's not for granted. Yeah. And so the question for us as leaders is how do you nurture passion and commitment for people that come and work with you and don't just give you whatever's on the job description, but yeah. they give you more of themselves. A big part of how you nurture this passion and this commitment is by making sure that when people come and they're part of your organization, they don't feel that they have to be somebody else. I'm a female, and if I want to be successful, I have to behave like a male. No. You know, I'm a, I'm a black person. If I want to be successful, I really have to behave like a white person. Um, you know, if you feel that you have to be somebody else to be successful, or that if you're not somebody else, you will never go up in the organization because you look up at the top ranks of the organization, you don't see anybody that looks like you. Then it's more difficult for you to bring the whole self, to bring your passion, to bring your commitment, to give this extra uh, to an organization. And so diversity, which a lot of organizations, I think, talk about more in a, yes, it's the right thing to talk about at the moment, yeah. um, for me, is really something that comes from the heart, that mm-hmm. you, know, you, you want people to be happy, to, be, uh, to feel that they can be successful in an organization and, and be themselves. And so that's where, that's where it comes from. So your leadership style, uh, let me ask the question in the following way. What do you think people will say about you, the people that work with you? What do they say about you when you're not around? How would they describe you, you think? Well, we'd have, we'd have to, uh, <laughs> to ask them, but I think, they would, um, I think they would share with you that I am always learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so most of my conversations, you know, 
with, with whomever they are, mm -hmm. uh, are learning conversations. And those are conversations where I get the most energy. Yeah. Uh, but because there is so much, you know, so much to know, so much to discover. Uh, in, in our space, things are moving very fast. So I'm, I'm always behind, I feel, in my knowledge of what I, you know, what, what I think I need to know to make the right decisions. Yeah. So I think all, always learning and always learning about people. Um, I, I'm someone, I love people. Mm -hmm. I love knowing about their aspirations, their fears, their, uh, what drives them in the, yeah. in the morning. Um, and so I always want to learn about our people. And I, I always counsel our leaders that, you know, if, if you don't love people, then you should not be a CEO mm -hmm. because most of your time is spent working with and learning from others. But you're a rare combination where you're, I mean, you're an engineer, so you're pretty deep in the technology at the, and at the same time, you're very compassionate and very uh, into people as well. And, and, and so I would say that's, you need to combine these two uh, qualities, right? I think the latter one is, um, you know, I, I believe that um, to lead people into the uncertainties that we have in, in the technology, I think you have to want to know about people and you have to care about their aspirations. I think that's non-negotiable. The technology part, um, I, don't, I don't consider myself a deep technologist, but mm -hmm. I would say you also cannot lead people if you don't understand what they're doing. And so in, in technology specifically, um, I think you have to invest a lot of your time to understand um, where things are going, what are your teams building, yeah. and why are they building it this way, and why are they making this choice. Um, and it's, it's the intellectual stimulation that comes from yeah. being, in this, being in this great industry. Yeah. First of all, you have a family. Mm -hmm. You have kids as well? Yep. What age are they? I have three kids. They're one boy that's 14, and then two girls, 13 and 9. Okay. Perfect age, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so... If you look at your kids, what are, the, what are the values that you want them to grow up with? What is it that you want to pass on to, uh, to them? What is, the, for you, the most important values? You know, that's a, that's a great and a deep, uh, and a deep question. Um, the first one, you know, my wife Josiane and I um, are both from, uh, from Africa. My wife is from uh, Central Africa, from Gabon. Um, she and I, you know, right now we're raising our children in the United States. Okay. Um, but we do want to have, we want them to have a very strong sense of identity and, and knowing uh, where they are from okay. and being proud of where they are from. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what, one of the, in living in, in America on and off for the last 20 years, one of the challenges that America still has mm -hmm. um, is that, it, it portrays, the, I say the mainstream media and stories you hear portray quite a, a negative image of African-Americans. And that's one of the no. challenges that we as an African-American community have. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's easy for you know, a black child growing in America to absorb all this and, and have a, a perspective that could be maybe a loss of confidence. And so we want them to have a strong sense of identity, a strong sense of where they come from, being yeah. proud. Even though in our respective countries, uh, there is a lot of poverty and there's a lot of um, mm -hmm. development we still need to go through. Yeah. Uh, to understand why that is there, how it will be overcome, yeah. perhaps inspire them at some point to contribute to uh, overcoming that um, that poverty is very important for us. And I think that perhaps the, the number one value I want to, them to have. And then the, the second one is to also know that 
um, they are in a situation of privilege of growing up with you know parents that are uh, well together off, no. in a healthy household their parents that have everything that uh, we can offer them and and knowing that um, you know the people who don't have the same thing around us uh, it's not just when uh, we are in Africa and you know we go to various areas and they see that it's also where they live in Seattle where yeah. this exists and so you know bringing them up with a sense of you know, they will contribute to the world in many ways yeah. and they will have an opportunity to help others. Yeah. I think it's a big part of what we want them to, yeah. to grow up with. Because you live in a very wealthy part of the world. Mm -hmm. You have, uh, you're well off, you have, you're, you're a highly paid individual, I can imagine. Uh, and you come from, uh, from Togo, where people live at $50 a month. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so how do you how do you manage that in your mind and 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 how do you do you have a, a way to give back to the country as well how do you contribute to to your to Togo let's say well so I um, for the last uh, uh, now it's, we started in 1998 so for the last uh, more than 20 years mm -hmm. um, I have been involved in Togo in the rural agricultural world okay um, I have uh, believed for a long time that the the development of Africa would come through a revolution in the agricultural world. Okay. Africa still has the largest um, available land uh, to cultivate right. uh, in the world. Uh, we're going to have um, potentially 9 billion people by 2050. And if, if the planet wants to feed 9 billion people, Africa needs to revolutionize its agriculture because a lot of the food is going to have to come from Africa where a lot of the land is not cultivated and even the land that is cultivated, the yields that we have uh, are, are still relatively low. So I felt this way for a long time, but also because where there is most poverty is also uh, oftentimes in the rural areas. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, recently we started, I said recently is about um, four, 15 years ago now, um, we, I got involved in the cashew industry um, and we started processing cashews mm -hmm. uh, in Togo yeah. um, because it creates, the cashew processing creates a lot of employment in rural areas. Yeah. It uses a, a raw, uh, raw material that is produced locally yeah. uh, and it can change the livelihood of a, yeah. a lot of people. So that's one of the ways that I have been getting involved but it is a drop in the water of uh, you know, of a large ocean. Yeah. And you still believe that agriculture is going to save Africa or save Africa, make it a, a, a better world? Or do you also think leadership needs to change there as well? Um, well, one, one leads to the other. Okay. Um, but it, when I say agriculture, I use it in the broader sense of term. It's both growing um, produce, but it's also agro-transformation and agro-processing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think all of these are absolutely necessary. I mean, yeah. it's going to become a planet imperative, and I think in the next 20 years, not just an Africa imperative. Yeah. Um, leadership will determine how fast that is done, how well it is done. Yeah. Is it done whilst uh, destroying the environment, or is it done in a way that is sustainable? Uh, is it done in a way that Africans benefit from yeah. this revolution? Mm -hmm. uh, all of those questions will be resolved by the quality of the leadership that gets involved. Okay. In, in your life, the, I mean, you lived in Africa, in Europe, in the US, you must have met some quite amazing people, some inspiring mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. So who were uh, the people that you looked up to, that you learned from, your mentors in your life? Can, can you talk a bit about that? 
Yeah, starting from, uh, you know, I, I am very fortunate. I look up to my parents a okay. lot. Um, Your you father know, was an, uh, an architect, right? Yes, my father uh, is an architect. Oh, an architect. He is an architect. And, yeah. um, you know, he was, uh, I think, the first architect in, in Togo yeah. uh, when he came back in the early 60s and did a, a lot of, um, you know, buildings, both in Togo and in West Africa. Mm -hmm. um, my mother was in uh, demography. So she, uh, she was teaching at the University of Lomé and then she came back uh, to the organization in France that does research in demographics and published a lot of papers. And both of them in their different ways um, molded a lot their, their children and our view on the world and yeah. what matters most. So I look up to them a lot still to this very day. And what did you learn from your father, for instance? Um, my father is a very, you know, he's somebody who grew up in extreme poverty okay. um, in a village in the, you know, in the south of Togo uh, and really uh, achieved um, with two means. One is education mm -hmm. uh, and the second is he's somebody who was extraordinarily driven uh, and ambitious. Yeah. And so those two traits around valuing um, the, the meritocracy that comes from investing in education and, and valuing, you know, being driven and doing the hard work yeah. every day. Uh, I think my father was a strong influence so on that. So you learned from him to set high goals and work hard? Pretty much, uh, yeah. pretty much. And then my mother, um, I think in many ways she was a more rounded leader, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and I think everything I learned about, um, you know, when I say I love people and, mm -hmm. and helping, um, helping others thrive, um, being compassionate about um, understanding the adversities that other people face and mm -hmm. maybe wanting to help uh, with these adversities, um, being very respectful of um, the, the diversity of, of other people's perspectives. My mother, I think, was a big influence um, in that. She was somebody who herself... Um, and by the way, she's still alive, I speak in the past, <laughs> but she transcended, uh, you know, she grew up in a Catholic community in France mm -hmm. and she made a decision uh, in the late 60s uh, to leave France and move to Africa and marry an African, yeah. which was at the time um, usual <laughs> very unusual. Yeah. And she had to go against, I think, a lot of her, mm -hmm. the belief of her community. Uh, but she did that because she had a she had a strong desire for a learning about other cultures, but she also wanted to raise them you know, mixed race children, yeah. uh, because she felt the world was about mixing and understanding different cultures. So she a, brought a lot for us. You have a big family us. then, right? We have a very big family. Yeah. My, my father had uh, 15 siblings, so <laughs> I have a lot of cousins. <laughs> <laughs> so you go back to, your, to Togo on a regular basis then? Um. I am, yes, I am in Togo every six months, in part for the family and in part for the, for, for the business. For the business yes. And that business employs a lot of people there? Or? Yeah, we have um, a little more than 800 people 800 in the people. factories today. Okay. And then we're, we're also starting um, planting a lot of cashew trees. So we employ more people in the, uh, the, um, in the farming world. Okay. Do you have a, a personal mantra? Uh, as, uh, uh, a mantra that you use when you have to make tough decisions, something that guides you in your life? Um, yes, I mean, I think like a lot of people, um, you know, I, I want to respect some principles that I've set for myself. Yep. Probably at the top of them is the integrity, mm -hmm. um, you know, trying to be true to my words um, and vice versa. I think a, a lot of people feel that, but I, um, you know, when you're in positions of responsibility, 
um, a lot of times you make decisions that are not necessarily visible to the outside world. Um, and so you, you, you sometimes have to just confront your own self around, hey, I've, I've set out these principles, am I gonna live by them? Yep. So integrity is the, the, I think, a big one for, for me. Um, humility and respect of others, knowing that you know, no matter the job that somebody has or where they come from, or the orientation they may have, there's always something yep. that I can learn from them uh, is, I think, the biggest one for me. Okay. If you look back, what was the best thing that ever happened to you in your life? Uh, it's, it's probably, other than being born from the two parents I mentioned to yeah, you, being which was, <laughs> which being born is great, <laughs> but from those two parents, which I, you know, I didn't choose, but I think they, um, in, in the, they, they brought a lot to, to my life. Um, Probably the fact that my wife agreed to marry me. Yeah. Be, that's, a, that's, a, that's one of the best things that uh, uh, happened to me because we've, um, you know, we've been together for uh, uh, 22 years now, and it's been, um, you know, a, a, a great adventure to, mm -hmm. you know, travel around the world and raise the three children that uh, we have. Yeah, you made quite a career. You're a successful professional, but I'm sure you made your failures as well. Mm -hmm. Would you, could you disclose what was one of your most brilliant failures that you ever did and what did you learn from it? You know, when I was, um, I have so many failures, I have to, I have to choose from them. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, in, in my early career um, after joining Siena, mm -hmm. I um, I decided, so Siena needed uh, to open up offices in Germany. And at the time I was based in London. Okay. And I raised my hand and said, oh, I can, I can be the country manager for Germany. Yeah. And Siena was growing fast and the company was crazy enough to offer me the job. And I was crazy enough to take it. But, you know, I had never been in sales really. Um, I had never sold anything in Germany for yeah. sure. I didn't speak German. Different culture, different, different culture. culture. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I was also very young at the time, and I didn't look like an accomplished German businessman. Let me yeah. put it this way. <laughs> and so I came into Germany, and um, we were doing no business there, so okay. our revenue was zero. So I would get on the calls with my boss every week. As far as how much did you do? It was zero, <laughs> and that went on for nine months, where um, I was I was finding opportunities, but I was never able to close these opportunities and win business because yeah. I was lacking the skills, I was lacking the experience, I was lacking the relationships, yeah. I was missing. And it was a period for nine to ten months where I, I got into a time where I was really doubting myself. Say, Francois, okay. what did you do? You put yourself in this job, yeah. and you you just you can't do it. Um, but. You know, this is where the, sometimes you just have to have faith in yourself that there are things that you have that maybe you don't realize that will help you. And so in hindsight, I can tell you that in that period, uh, I continue to learn every single day yeah. about what I was missing. Oh, I made this mistake and I made that mistake and I should have done this yeah. and continue to apply. And little by little, yeah. um, I got better. I couldn't tell because I still wasn't winning the business, but I was getting better. Um, and um, that, that drive that I mentioned to you to say, look, you know, no matter what, um, 
I will stick with it, I will work harder, and I will not give up, and eventually I will succeed. And so after 12 months, I finally um, won some business. Uh, and then after that, once the first piece of business came, other, other opportunities came, and it became yeah. a, a, a success. But it's, what I learned from it is when you go into a very significant period of adversity where you're doubting everything about you, mm-hmm. once you get through that, um, you are stronger after that and yep. you know your confidence and your desire to take the next risk and yep. the next bold adventure is greater. Okay. Now these videos are watched by um, CIOs, digital leaders, uh, but also future digital leaders, future CEOs, people in the, in the technology space, uh, enterprise IT. So if, um, if, if a younger uh, ambitious um, uh, technology guy is watching this video and wants to be in, in your chair in five or ten years, what would the advice be that you would give that person? Uh, I, I guess there will be a few, but I, w- I would say um, number one, and it may be cliche, but um, always be learning, mm-hmm. always be curious, uh, about things because if, if you want to be a digital leader in technology know that it moves faster than you and so always be leveraging wherever you are to learn yep. number two um, it, a career may seem like a long time you know 25 30 years in reality it's very short and so you have to be taking risks mm-hmm. um, you know I mentioned one of them to you with the the, the story about Germany but yep. You, I would advise aspiring leaders to know that their most precious commodity is their time mm-hmm. and the learning returns on your time have to be high. Yep. And if you find yourself in a, in a job where you learned a lot and now your, your learning returns on your time invested are low, time to then it's time to, to take the next risk and yep. get to the next quantum leap yep. in, in your career. Um, and don't postpone that for too long. Sometimes you have to postpone it for personal reasons, mm-hmm. you know, family, etc. Yeah. But if you, if you really want to get to, you know, the top of what you're doing, um, you've got to be taking some risks and the earlier, earlier you take the risk, the better, yeah. because you learn to take them better yeah. and your failures are less costly when you're uh, in the early days, yeah. but you have to learn to take some risks. Yeah. Those would probably be the, I think the two biggest one. And then the third one, if I can add one, would be to learn to enroll people on your team. You know, we are all, we are all um, taught um, about this meritocracy that, hey, if you work hard, you know, and you do things yourself, you will do well. Mm-hmm. But the reality is nobody gets anywhere on their own. And so learning to, um, uh, with humility, you know, go to people and take them as mentors or yeah. sponsors, as advisors. That's what I mean by learning to have people on your team is, is the people who can give you a perspective that yeah. you don't have, who can see some things in you that you can't see for yourself. Learning to do that early on and doing it proactively, I think is the third um, uh, perhaps leg of this tool of how you accelerate your, your career. Okay. And so with that, Francois, I would like to thank you um, uh, for this conversation. It was inspiring. Uh, I learned a lot. Uh, so thank you for coming over and, uh, and all the best at F5. Thank you, Hendrik. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me.